All right. Good to see everyone. It is good to be together. Um, for our prayer this morning, I want to spend some time praying for some sister churches of ours. Many of you know that we're part of a couple um, networks, associations. We're part of a regional network called Three Strand. It has six churches churches in the North Puget Sound area. And then we're also part of a um, the NEB, North American Baptist Association, which is a um, much larger uh, association of churches. Uh, but in our region, there's a few NAB churches that I'm particularly close with and that, that know about us as a church and, and pray for us. Um, I gather regularly with a few guys um, from these local NAB churches and have really just been greatly encouraged um, by their friendship and their relationship and their care and concern. So I want to mention three particularly, and then we're just going to pray for them and their churches. So Brian McSwan up in Bellingham is pastor of Legacy Church. Um, they've had a hard last couple years just with some uh, leadership uh, changes and stuff, um, but they're in a really good spot right now and have a lot of unity in the church. Um, David Lawler in Cedra Woolley at Redeemer Cedra Woolley. Um, one thing for them just to be praying about, they just this Sunday, they just moved out of their space that in downtown Cedar Woolley that they were renting into a community hall, so they're going to be in a set-up, tear-down kind of situation for now. Um, so I think they're excited about that, but can be praying about that for them. And then um, Paul Veal is a pastor of uh, Grace Fellowship in Sultan, um, and uh, Paul's just a great, humble, godly man. Um, and uh, yeah, so Let's pray. I just wanted to mention those churches and pastors by name, and we're going to spend a little time praying for them. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the, the relationships and connections you've given us as a church and, and me as a pastor, just with some other um, like-minded churches and, and, and brothers who are pastoring these churches. And thank you for the, the fellowship and support and accountability and wisdom and counsel that um, that provides. Thank you for their care for us as a church. Just um, hearing last week that they um, that Grace Fellowship in Sultan was praying for us during their service, and just the encouragement of that. Thank you that we are not isolated and alone in in this, and in, in, in just pre living out, sharing the gospel, um, seeking you. Uh, thank you for the testimony of these other churches and their congregations. Um, we do lift up Redeemer and Cedar Woolley, particularly as they have their first service today in a new space. Um, pray that you would encourage them. Um, pray that you would just give them unity as a church, that you would give them joyful fellowship together, um, that you would provide um, elders to, to lead, love, and serve, and teach the church. Um, and you would just draw others into that church to hear your word and to be connected who are looking for a church in that area. Um, I pray for Brian and Legacy up in Bellingham. Uh, we thank you for them and just the, the long friendship that you've given me with Brian. Um, we pray, thank you for um, leading them through a tough couple years and bringing them to where they are today, just feeling a lot of, of unity and encouragement um, as a church body, um, we pray that you would show them your grace, uh, that you would also just bear much fruit among them, encourage them, 
Um, keep them unified in the gospel. And then we pray uh, for Paul Veal and, and Grace Fellowship in Sultan. And just pray that you would bear fruit through through that church, through your word there, that you, as lots of people are, there's lots of houses going up there and people are moving there, we pray that you would draw many people to their church and them to, to people who need a church. And you would show your, your hand and your power and goodness. Lord, we... We know you love your church. We know that you have great plans for your church. Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not um, come against it, not prevail against it. Um, we thank you for these promises. Help us to, to love your church as you do, even though we are broken in many ways. And um, Help us to rightly love your church and see your good plan and purpose for your church. And we pray for our church. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of um, what you're doing here in this community and to be able to witness your specific work in so many people's lives and be a part of that. We thank you for gathering this body together and teaching us. Thank you for a church that is hungry for you and your word. Um, thank you for the unity that you've given us even through the last few years of of much um, disruption and, and division in, in our society. Thank you for holding us together. Um, we pray that you would continue to bear fruit through us. Um, lead us to others and lead others to us. Um, help us to um, just know the, the weight and burden and urgency of uh, the gospel going out, of making disciples, of proclaiming you as, as Lord over all things. And uh, we would trust you to bear fruit through that. Help us to be faithful. Help us to seek you diligently, proclaim you boldly, and then trust you to, to bear fruit through that. And ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In your name, amen. All right. Well, we believe that the God of all creation, the God who rules over all things, the creator, sustainer, and judge of all, has spoken to us. He's given us his word that we might know him and that we might come to him. And in his word, we have everything that we need for life and for godliness and for salvation. This is an amazing, amazing reality that our creator God has spoken to us. And so we preach from God's word. We start with God's word and we seek to understand what he has said to us, what he has said for us. So we're currently in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we're going to be in chapter 10 today, and we're going to cover the first 18 verses of chapter 10. But I first want to direct your attention to the passage immediately after the section we're going to cover today. So in verse 19, we'll cover this next week, and it is the conclusion of all of chapters 8 through 10 that we've been going through. So starting at 19, it says, therefore, brothers. So we see that this is connected to what we're going to look at today. But I want you to see how it's connected and what this says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is, to come before God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh, speaking of Jesus' death and what it accomplished, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus is our mediator, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the burden of all that we've been reading these last few weeks through chapters 8 through 10 about Jesus and his death and him being greater than the old covenant and its laws and sacrifices, the burden of all of this, what it's leading to is this, that we would have great confidence to come before God, to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. That is what the, the point here, that is what you are meant to see, what God is helping you to see and God is motivating you towards. That you would know that your heart is cleansed from an evil conscience. That you would know that your sin and guilt cannot and does not keep you from coming to God if you were in Christ by faith. That in Christ, because of the cross, God does not keep you at arm's length doesn't begrudgingly receive you half-heartedly, have some regrets about it. You don't have to be insecure or unsure or timid as you come to God, but can do so confidently, with confidence to enter the holy places, with full assurance. Those are the words that God would put before you to understand what it means and to understand how you can come to him with confidence in full assurance of faith. And we have this here in front of us in God's word because we need it, because we doubt it. We wonder if God will really receive us. We wonder if our sin will turn God's heart from us. We wonder if we need to clean our act up a little bit, prove our worthiness, get in a better spot, turn ourselves around, really show our sufficiency before we can come to God. And God is trying to destroy that thinking. God is trying to destroy all of that thinking. And that's what we're getting to. So that's the direct application of what we're looking at. We'll cover that next week. But to see that, we first have to see that Jesus and his death for sins is absolutely sufficient. We have to see that God has done everything necessary to draw us to himself. We have to see that there's no point to going back to relying on, on works and sacrifices and offerings. That's what we've been working through these last few weeks. That's what chapter 10 continues to drive home. So back to verse 1, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law, now the law there is just another way to refer to the old covenant, uses different terms here, but the old covenant that God had made with ancient Israel, the law has but a shadow, we talked about that word last week, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So we are comparing and contrasting Jesus to the law and the covenant and the sacrifices that God had made with ancient Israel. And we are told that everything associated with that old covenant, the laws, the sacrifices, the, the priests, the cleansing rituals, the temple, 
All of that was like a shadow. It gave a true picture, a true image of the real thing, like a shadow on the wall actually tells you what the real thing might look like, but it wasn't the real thing. It was not, as it says, the true form of these realities. God gave it for a time in order to teach about himself and about sin and about salvation, but because it was a shadow, it can never make perfect those who draw near. In other words, obedience to laws and the offering of regular sacrifices of animals for sins and going through all these cleansing rituals didn't really and doesn't really cleanse us of sin. It didn't really and doesn't really solve this problem that the Bible presents before us of a holy God and sinful people. Another New Testament book helps explain this same thing, but with a different analogy. So in Galatians 3, we read, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or it could be uh, translated tutor or instructor. The law was our guardian, tutor, instructor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that Christ, now that faith has come, and, and Christ has come, the faith that is in Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So a, a child, as they're growing up, may have a tutor or instructor or guardian for a temporary period to train them up and to watch over them. That's what a guardian, tutor, instructor does. And we are told that the Old Testament law and covenant, this um, these promises that God had made and this um, relationship that God had set up with ancient Israel has a similar purpose, had a similar purpose as a temporary guardian and instructor. But now that the coming faith is revealed in Christ, that covenant has been fulfilled and no longer reigns over us, no longer reigns over God's people. We are no longer under it. It was always meant to point to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. So that's the big idea. And Hebrews is going to go on now and give various evidences and proofs and arguments why this is the case, why the old covenant and its sacrifices could never take away sins. So verse 2. Otherwise... Would they, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So if these animal sacrifices and cleansing rituals really make perfect and cleanse sinful humanity and bring us to God, wouldn't they have ceased? That's a rhetorical question. Yes, they would have. But we know that they had to be continually be offered, continually, every year. If you're sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, I'm going to heal you once a week, you would rightly ask, I'm not sure you are healing me if I have to keep coming back to you once a week. Why didn't it work the first time? If a pipe bursts in your home and the plumber comes and says, hey, I'm going to come and fix this pipe once a week, you would again rightly question the plumber. I'm not sure you're really fixing the pipe if you have to keep coming back. Now, you might say that sin 
is a bit different than being sick or needing a pipe fixed because we keep sinning. And don't we thus need a sacrifice to continue to take away the guilt all of the time? But that's not how God works. If that were the case, you would never truly be right with God because we don't go five minutes without sinning. That's not the kind of cleansing and forgiveness that God gives or we need. His is a having once been cleansed kind of work. Having once been cleansed. In the past, it's done, which leads to no more consciousness of sins. If you kind of turn around and, and, and understand the implications of verse 2 there. Having once been cleansed, would, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, which means no longer have any condemning consciousness of sins, right? The, the gospel and the Bible requires us to distinguish between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is the work of God's spirit, helping us to see our sin rightly, so that we would not turn away from God, run away from God, but that we would come towards him and find his grace. That is the purpose of conviction, to draw us nearer to God. Condemnation is the objective state that we find ourselves in when we don't do that, when we refuse to come to God and we refuse to turn to Christ for salvation. And so if you are in Christ, there is a place for conviction. It is a grace that leads you to live in the light, to draw near to Christ, and to be conformed more to his image. Conviction leads to life and freedom if you come to Christ. But if you are in Christ, there is no place for condemnation. Go and memorize Romans, one, uh, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to God through Christ, if you have come to him in faith, there is no condemnation. Which is a settled reality, state, fact. No condemnation. And why there is no condemnation is what we're looking at here. What did God do to make that the case? So going on, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, that is of the old covenant, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So one of the functions of this old covenant and the sacrifices was to proclaim to the people a reminder of their sin and what sin was and what it required. It also proclaimed to people something about God, that he was gracious. I mean, the fact that God set up this system was communicating that God was going to do something about this problem. God was going to make a way for sinful humanity to come boldly into his presence. But this system was not the way. It was a shadow of that way. And then Hebrews argues that you can see this even in the Old Testament. So this is not new. This is, this is attested to even in the Old Testament. So starting in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Now, um, we're going to see a quote here from Hebrews is going to quote Psalm 40, which we don't have any record of, Psalm, of, of Jesus actually saying, but the idea here is that his life, as he came into the world and what he did, his whole life proclaims and fulfills the truth of this. 
So he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is Psalm 40. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Psalm 40 is one piece of evidence, of Old Testament evidence, written while this system of temp priests and sacrifices and cleansing rituals was still in place, that that very system was insufficient. Psalm 40 emphasizes that ritual sacrifices and offerings are meaningless if there is no active trust in God. They don't just work automatically. It'll do no good to perform all the sacrifices and offerings in the world if your heart is far from God, if you are cold towards God. We also need faithful and obedient hearts and wills alive to the love of God. But Hebrews takes this psalm and then applies it to Jesus. It is his faithful obedience to the will of God that ultimately matters. It is his trust in God that ultimately matters. So just like a good sermon, which Hebrews is, having quoted Psalm 40, it now unpacks it. It exposes what it means. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By what will? By that will, we have been sanctified. Well, what will? Well, by the will of the Father as Jesus accomplished it. As Jesus did it. As Jesus obeyed it. Our hope is in the perfect obedience and faithfulness of Jesus to carry out the plan of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our hope is not in our obedience and faithfulness and will, but in His. And as you read through the Bible, you see this over and over again. The Bible, de the Bible destroys every hope that we might put in humanity. Ancient Israel is a fickle and faithless people, despite all that God does for them. All of the quote-unquote heroes in the Bible have massive failures, grave sin that would have gotten all of them canceled and removed from their positions if they lived today, and rightfully so. And apart from God, God grabbing a hold of us and indwelling us and strengthening us by his spirit, we are a faithless and fickle people. And so if there is to be any hope, there's to be any attaining to the pleasure of God and peace with God, if there's to be any cleansing of sin, it cannot come by our doing the will of God, by our faithful obedience. And so Jesus come and comes and says, Behold, I have come to do your will. And it is by his doing, his faithfulness, his work, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now this phrase, to be sanctified, or we have, have been sanctified. Sanctified means to uh, be set apart, 
to be dedicated to God as God's very own, made holy or right. So we're not only here talking about the removal of sin and guilt. That's not all God is doing. That's not all he's about. We are talking about being reconciled to God, brought into a right relationship with God, set apart, having lives that are set apart for him and his purposes and his pleasure. It's not just the removal of something, it's the making right of something and bringing us to God. That's what God is about. Now, I want to take a moment and take note of the specifics of the grammar here, specifically of the tense, the, the verb tense. Bear with me. In the original Greek, the word sanctified here is what is called a perfect passive participle. You guys are so excited about this. You don't need to know the term, but you do, uh, but the meaning really matters. So perfect means that it happened in the past and is completed. It's done. It's perfect. Passive means that it happened passively. This is opposite of active. An active verb, you did it. Passive, it was done to you. The subject was not active in this, but passive. Have been sanctified. In the past, completed, done to or for us passively. Um, you see the same verb tense back in t verse 2, um, where it says, they having once been cleansed. Having once been cleansed. So understand what this is saying. If you have trusted in Christ and his death for salvation, you have been cleansed and sanctified. Your sin has been taken away. You have been made right with God in a passive way. It was done to you. And this is in the past, done perfectly once and for all, in the death of Jesus. You're not saved slowly over time. Christ doesn't need to die again and again for you like the Old Testament sacrifices. It's not an ongoing thing. His one-time offering of himself is perfect and a and complete and applies to you passively, apart from any work or earning of yourself. He saves you. You trust him for salvation. You might think similarly about uh, eating food. We have been fed, perfect, passive. The food was given to us, which is quite different from saying we are being fed in an ongoing way, or we ate something we did, or we are eating, something we did that is ongoing. Isn't this fun? <laughs> no, this verb tense, which none of you stayed up late last night thinking about, is actually expressing a significant truth. You are not being cleansed and set apart from God. You are not cleansing and setting yourself apart for God. It's done. Through the body and blood of Jesus, giving, given as an offering for sin, once and for all, God has saved, cleansed, sanctified you, and it is done and complete, and it is passively applied to you. You did nothing for it. He's done everything. And if you jump back to 19, so that you would come to him in confidence and full assurance. That's the big point of this passage expressed in a single verb tense. And as we go on, notice that the, the same point is being made again and again in various ways. So next section, verse 11. 
And every Old Testament priest stands daily at his service. So if, if he's standing daily at his service, that means there is an ongoing need. The job never ends. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. He sat down. Now, you sit down when the job's complete, right? Well, some of you sit down because there's still work to do. But the idea here is that you sat down because the job is complete. At the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected. Now, the tense here is passive. He, it, it is done, complete, but it's active because it is God doing it. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So look at the terminology there. All time, single sacrifice for sins, sat down, single offering, has perfected for all time. You, you cannot miss the point. He has done everything and it is done. So come to him, trust in him, confidence, come boldly before him, worship and love and enjoy him who has done it all. Now, real quick, that phrase at the end there in verse 14, are being sanctified, which is in the present tense and might look like it's referring to something different than what we just looked at, perhaps speaking of an ongoing sanctification which you do find elsewhere in Scripture referring to the ways that God is continuing to work on us after we come to him. But in Hebrews, this word sanctification is, or sanctified is, is always referring to what we just looked at, this one-time act of God, what Paul calls justification. So the meaning here is probably something like those who have been sanctified and set apart for God find themselves in this state every day until eternity. Every day you wake up and you find that you have been and you are set apart as God's. Continues to be true. Last few verses. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Old Testament, which he's about to quote again, also bears witness to us that, that this is the kind of work that God would do in the New Covenant. For after saying... Now we're going to go back to Jeremiah 31, which we saw back in chapter 8. This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. And then, Jeremiah, and he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then the author of Hebrews wraps this up. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this new work, this new covenant that God promised to bring about and has accomplished in Jesus involves the true and full forgiveness once and for all of sins. Psalm 32 had spoken of this long before. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's what Jesus came to do on the cross for all his people, for all who would come to him. And since that is the case, where there is true and full forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering or need for any offering for sin. That is, there's no longer any place for additional offerings and other sacrifices and cleansing, including 
whatever faithfulness and obedience and love and worship and, and diligence and sacrifices you are making in your life, which the Bible, God does call us to make these sorts of things, but they are in no way an offering for sin. They are in no way the basis of God's pleasure of us, of, of our relationship with him. What Christ's all-sufficient life, death, and resurrection proclaims, what Hebrews is here proclaiming, is that there is no way to make up for your sin yourself. There's no way to atone for your own sin, no way to prove your worthiness, no way to secure God's love by your obedience. It is Christ and Christ alone. This means there's no hope in mere religion, going through rituals, whether of the old covenant or ones that we come up with today. There's no hope in mere morality and ethics, just being a good and upright citizen. And there's also no hope in ignoring God and just saying, well, I'll figure it out on my own. We must come to God through Jesus. And so the message here for the original readers of this, who were mainly Hebrew Jewish believers, was don't go back to that system. It, is, it was always insufficient. It was always meant to point to Christ, to be fulfilled in Christ. And the message to us today is don't dismiss or devalue or miss the sufficiency of Christ in the cross. He is the only grounds of salvation from start to finish. There's salvation in no other name. There is cleansing of sin and a guilty conscience, freedom from condemnation in no other way. Now, I realize that a text like this and a sermon like this might seem overly uh, theological and perhaps not as practical. But I would submit that life is necessarily theological. Life is necessarily, has to do with what you think about God and about what God actually is like. You were made for a relationship with God. You were made to live your life before God and for God. The, the first question of the Westminster Shorter, ca Shorter Catechism, um, the 17th century document to teach the Christian faith that has stood the test of time, says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you and I and every human being exists for. To love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to be caught up in enjoying and worshiping him now and forever. And God accomplishes this in us through the cross. As, as we behold the wonderful truths that we are considering today and grasping by faith, God means to remake us into who we were created to be. God intends to make us alive to his glory and goodness. As we just saw in, in, in verse 19, the point of all of this is that we might have confidence to draw near to him. Through the cross, God is drawing us near to himself, and there's nothing more important and practical than that. And so don't write this off as insignificant theology. The, the cross is absolutely central to our lives. Your identity is wrapped up in the cross or it should be. God intends for it to be. Your motivation for life is wrapped up in the cross. Your hope 
through suffering and, and toil and struggle is wrapped up in the cross. Your, your love and enjoyment of God is wrapped up in the cross. Your love and service and ministry to others is wrapped up in the cross. Your purpose for living is meant to be wrapped up in the cross. And so behold the cross again and again. Behold Christ on the cross. And keep doing it. Keep doing it. Let's pray.